Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And this week, we're talking about filmmaker Patrick Wang. That's right. Festival month continues on The Important Cinema Club podcast. This is the month where we're talking about either film festivals or filmmakers who thrive at festivals. Uh, thrive is probably a strong word because I think something that defines Patrick's career is even the difficulty of get, getting his films to play festivals. So this is a bit of a counterintuitive entry for Festival Month. We previously talked about Hong Sang-soo. We mm-hmm. talked about the this year's Toronto International Film Festival. Next week, we'll be talking about some darlings of the festival community. But this is a filmmaker who is w- very well acclaimed, mm-hmm. has strong supporters. He is- has a four-star review for his first film from... I'm Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert. Jonathan Rosenbaum is a great champion. Big deal people like this filmmaker. 20 years ago, if that happened, that would make their career. Yeah. And they would have studios knocking down their door. And yet, this filmmaker, you know, he's not showing his stuff at the New York Film Festival, not at Cannes, not even at TIFF. I mean, he shows at some smaller festivals. So he's a counterintuitive suggestion. Well, when you think of festival, maybe you think of like the big guys. This guy did play festivals, such acclaimed film festivals like... The What the Film Festival. That's right. So what's What the Film Festival? Well, that's a film festival spearheaded by Peter Kaplowski and that I help program as well because it's like Laser Blast Film Society focused. But Peter does most of the heavy lifting and he did get to see Patrick Wang's last feature film at to this day, which is A Bread Factory Part 1 and 2. And he just connected with it. And we played it, and Patrick came over, too. And boy, I had a great conversation with him about movies and books and all of his passions. Yeah, the What the Film Festival, I mean, my sense is that, like, that was a film festival made out of, like, the screeners of movies that were just a little too weird, a little too strange, a little too nonconformist to get programmed at a real film festival. Well, Peter... Sorry, I shouldn't say real film festival. You shouldn't say real film festival. Yeah, a a a major film festival. Certain expectations of, like, what will bring audiences in. That's right. Because if you look a at a commercial film festival, because Peter programs for TIFF and he programs for Fantastic Fest. Right. So if Patrick's films don't have those like weird kind of genre elements and they don't, then it's a difficult sell, I guess. And I'll tell you, I've seen great things. So what the film festival, mm-hmm. Damon Packard, for instance. Oh, that's right. We showed Fatal Pulse. Yeah, that was that was my first Packard. And when we showed A Bread Factory, I was disappointed that there wasn't that many people that came out. Patrick was there, gave a great Q&A, and it seemed kind of, you know, the norm of his festival experience is that he's someone that people don't really know and that he makes very, not difficult films, but films that don't fit within a very specific box, I would say. Well, you look at Patrick Wang's filmography and you realize that they don't have the hooks that get most of us to see a movie, whether it's like a star. I mean, you may say that like James Marsters from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Janine Garofalo. Garofalo, Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, oftentimes a star, you may think you're not seeing a movie for the star, but the star on some subconscious level like lends a movie legitimacy. Mm -hmm. Also, his movies are very long. I mean, in particular, A Bread Factory is a two-part, four-hour film. That's right. Two two hours each. And you would think that would be like catnip to film festivals of like, ah, yes, it seems big and important. But if you're not somebody that's well-known, they're like, eh, no thank you. His first two films, The Grief of Others and In the Family, are very formally rigorous movies about very serious things. Mm -hmm. I mean, in those movies, I can see why Rosenbaum likes him, because he feels like, I'm not drawing a direct comparison, but a sort of fellow traveler to 
overseas figures like Abbas Kiristami or a Pichapong Wirasathakul or, mm-hmm. you know, people who give the audience a lot of space. I think there's like a, a great deal of like, like he'll often work in these long, unbroken static shots that don't necessarily direct your eye, don't That's direct film your attention. That's festival right there, right? When you think well, of those kind of movies. It, it should be. Yes. And like, and like, I think the, A Bread Factory literalizes this, but those first two movies are very interactive with the mm-hmm. audience and don't necessarily draw a distinction between spectator and filmmaker. Like, and when we'll talk about A Bread Factory, even though j Rowe would go, whoa, 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 that's simplifying it too much. It's a Jacques Yvette film. And that's what j Rowe, j Rowe loves that guy. I mean, I see a bit of that. No, absolutely. That. The yeah. theater, the kind of experimental, it's not a improv heavy film, but it has that kind of anything goes feeling to it. So in the family, his 2011 first film. And by the way, when I say that his movies don't have like the hooks, like another thing is this one has no stars and it's dealing with like heavy duty subject matter. And it is three hours long, three hours long. Yes. So, but once you get over that, like this movie is incredibly powerful. What I say to people to try to get them to watch them is like, Hey man, you want a suspense film where you only need the edge of your seat? Well, check out in the family. They're like, what's it about? It's about a same sex couple. And that one of them dies in a car accident. His biological son is then taken away by his family, leaving the other man who also raised the son from birth has no rights for him. And he tries to fight and figure out a way how he can get his son back under his roof. That's right. Because the man's like the son called both of them dad, but his last will, the biological father's last will and testament was written 10 years ago. Yes. So and it, that like the mother died in childbirth and that there wasn't anything like inappropriate. That's not hanging over the movie or anything like that. Well, yeah. Yeah, like the relationship was not ruined by like an affair or no. anything like that. He was with a woman. She died during childbirth and then he became a long-term partner of a man. Mm-hmm. And then he dies. And then what happens to this kid who like has, has had no biological link to this other man? They weren't married and, and no legal link yeah, either. That's what I mean. Yeah. There's only at most a moral link. Mm-hmm. And so there's a scene halfway through this movie where the surviving husband played by the way, by Patrick Wang himself goes to did, see did you a read lawyer. That Roger Ebert review where Roger Ebert is like Patrick Wang based on this movie is a good man. He did the thing that like Truffaut did about Edgar G. Elmer. You know, that's funny because I I buy that. I I feel that. You want to hear something wild about this movie? Patrick Wang does not have an accent that he has in this film where he's playing I believe he's from Tennessee. He adds a little bit of a southern twang to to his his voice. voice. Yeah. And I must say his performance in this movie, I do find it like a little stylized. I don't find it like completely naturalistic. Well, because he's not giving any like big emotions and sometimes he's kind of like staring like at the other person talking when something like very heavy is being discussed and like i'm kind of break i'm kind of conscious of the fact that it's a fake accent and yet it's really it's very Ro- consistent roger ebert was like oh i assume it's his real speaking voice and stuff like that yeah i don't know maybe it's just his diction mm-hmm. like like the rhythm at which he talks but particularly like in the last act of the movie when he talks a lot yeah. like there seems something stylized about that performance to me but there's an internal like coherence to the performance well so the movie when you hear that description of it you assume it'll be like oh court cases right going in and out figuring out ways to you know how can he get his son back no that's not what the movie is well all of the patrick wang movies are very elliptical there are moments of you know intense drama but oftentimes the camera is like just a little bit away from where the drama is so take for instance in the family when i mean maybe the most dramatic scene of the movie when patrick wang his character realizes that the son has been taken away from him you don't see him banging on the door 
you hear him in the distance banging on the door, but what you actually see is the inside of the apartment as the other family are there. As the woman is there, sort of knowing what she's done. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the most dramatic moment in the movie, but it's indicative of the way that he kind of like doesn't look at certain of the dramas directly. Like you don't look straight at the sun. Yeah, it's kind of the idea that if you you know, he's not trying to make it opaque to make it confusing, but by knowing it's in the margins, it becomes more powerful that way. I must also say the structure of the movie, I mean, for the first, I hate to spoil the impact of the movie, but for the first like 20 or 30 minutes, you're just with this family. You're like, I don't know what this movie's about. Yeah, he, like the the guy's alive and it's just the family hanging out together and there's nothing dramatic that happens but like you live with them and you get to love them and you need to understand they are a family unit that Mm -hmm. this kid great performance as well Mm -hmm. that like it makes sense for him to be with these people Mm -hmm. that it's not like oh I want it because I'm trying to hold on to my husband who left that no it's organic because that's how the kid grew up like and the fact that nothing like particularly dramatic he doesn't do anything badly or like oh I can't believe you let the kid do this that's why we're taking the kid away it's just The family basically takes the kid because they're sad that their son passed away. Right. And also, I mean, the the last will and testament was not updated. So like, what do you do? And they're like, well, you don't want to go against his will, right? They're like, it's a a blank sheet that he wrote. And, five when, years and ago. when the Patrick Wayne character goes to see the lawyer and the lawyer says, I'm going to stop you right there. I can't represent you because legally you have no case. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to steal your money. You yeah. have no case. So what the film builds to is the idea of, OK, if he has no case, what can he do? Mm-hmm. And all he can do is appeal to the people who took the kid away, which is the sister of his husband that passed away, which leads to what did you think of that last, like basically a 40 minute stretch? I mean, first of all, extraordinary, the patience that mm-hmm. it has and the dedication. Cause it's just a, a deposition that's yeah. happening. Yeah. And I, I mean, some of the deposition, like, some of the questions the lawyer asks, I mean, maybe they would have been more common in 2011. Certain of the questions he asks. You don't think they get asked anymore in Texas? Why well, in Texas, yeah. No, no, you've, you've got a point there. Uh, now we're, you know, galaxy brain and we don't ask these questions. Since, you know, marriage has Marriage been equality is unquestioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. But yeah, I mean, the, the patience of, of the filmmaking and the performances and then like the final shot of the movie yeah. is just like really devastating. And the decision that... Patrick Wang, as a guy answering the question, he doesn't like break or have any moment where he's like, oh, like a big emotional moment. Right. And that's, Which would be so easy. It was so easy in the context of the scene. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why I feel like the film works as well as it does, because it is asking you to kind of come forward and watch it, which is why it's a perfect film to watch in a theater, at mm-hmm. perhaps at a festival, for example. I think his 2015 film, The Grief of Others, his second film, is probably his most challenging movie. Absolutely. Not just in terms of the subject matter, which, like, there's less, I mean... S- stuff to hold on to. Yeah, and also, like, counterintuitively, the first movie has more joy in it. Yes. Like, like you could feel, like, the love in the movie's veins. You could feel, like, the goodness of the characters. Well, like, The Grief of Others is almost his reaction to in the family not making that much of an impact, I guess, to distributors or finding a wider audience that he went, all right, is what you want like a 90 minute elliptical movie shot on on 16 millimeter. I was actually incorrect when I said last week that in the family was shot on 35 or 16. It was actually shot on a red, but since then, The Grief of Others shot on 16 and like 
you do not know what's going on for hmm, 30 minutes in the grief of others. Yeah. Very, I actually watched the first 30 minutes twice because, oh, really? because I like was having trouble, like finding my way into the movie and getting my bearings. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, on the second viewing, I figured out, Oh, it's supposed, supposed to be like this. Yes. I thought I just missed something. Nope. Uh, it, it is supposed to be like that. And I don't think by the time it ends, you're like, Oh, well, there's no snapping into place yeah. moment. But again, it's like there are certain tragedies in this movie that the movie does. Everyone is like struggling with a tragedy. And the whole point of the movie is that they don't want to talk about these tragedies. Right. And so why should the movie mm-hmm. want to talk about it either? I mean, the main plot and it, I mean, I'll say it, it sounds more dramatic than it is, is that like there's a family. Something has happened. We don't know what it is at first. And then the husband's daughter from another marriage who's like a teenager shows up right and she's pregnant and so yeah something's happened in this family and the vibes are off yeah there's the younger son is like overweight and he's being relentlessly picked on at school the daughter also a little bit disconnected yeah she's like a truant and she's like doing odd things that like they don't know why like starting a fire in the house and things like that and the parents they're not clicking either some something has happened between them and we don't know what it is but there is a kind of fragile equilibrium you know even with this amount of disconnection there's a sort of truce that's been maintained how did you feel about like the quiet catharsis that he kind of reaches at the end of the movie where like he almost makes a note of one of the characters going, wait, are we doing this today? And the, the dad's like, yeah, we're doing it. And then it's just like a static shot for the rest of the movie. Yeah. As it plays out over that. I mean, I thought it was like, well, it's certainly a rupture in the style Mm -hmm. of what's come before, but you know, I thought it was very powerful. Mm -hmm. And also like, you know, the filmmaking is, is, even more restrained in this one for the most part, I think, than it is in the first one. He does have some interesting, like, stylistic quirks that Mm. Patrick, you know, when I talked to him, and as he said in interviews, like, he was never a cinephile. It's something that he came later Mm. to life. He was more into theater. So there is kind of, like interesting there's like some addresses to camera that are very brief in the grief of others i'm not surprised that he was a theater guy before he was a filmmaker because i mean in both these first two movies so many of those scenes that play out in these long shots and like a a patrick wang long shot is not the same as like a kevin smith long shot you know (laughs) like like it's you know it's very carefully composed yeah the decisions are blocking is very like odd and interesting and it's all creating this effect a certain distanciation effect but nevertheless, like his gaze does feel like a theater director's gaze mm. where like when you're in the audience at a play, nobody's telling you where to look specifically. Nobody's directing your eye in that way, whereas that's what film directors typically do. Yeah. So after The Grief of Others, I'm not sure how that one did. Like, I think it came out. Not, no, not notably. No, I mean, in fact, he self-distributed it. His first well. two films he did in The Family and The Grief of Others. He gave me a gigantic stack of Blu-rays when he was like, I just don't want to take these back here. Go. Wow. Matt Farley. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. The art house Matt Farley yeah. he even started in his own film. Yeah. And then he had a bread factory in 2018. Now, this is like. I guess this is my final film because I'm going to go out with a bang. Well, I certainly hope he makes more after this, although I can understand being discouraged. I've heard from someone actually messaged me after we said we we're going to do an episode on him. And he's like, oh, I know someone who knows someone that he's working on something. It may it did kind of get shut down due to SAG a- actress strike. But if he can get it started right after, I mean, he's he has something he wants to go with. I mean, you can either talk for like an hour about the plot of this one or two minutes. So maybe we'll do the two minute version, but yeah, it's a, it's an epic two part movie that is basically centered around the locus of this 
experimental theater company called The Bread Factory in New York. A small town in New York. Yeah, in upstate New York. And it's more than just a theater company. It's a community center. There's a lot of education that happens there. Art, poetry readings, movie screenings happen there. Yeah, you know, kids come and learn about the theater. It's run by this elderly lesbian couple played by Tyne Daly and an actress who I was unfamiliar with named Elizabeth Henry. Both of them excellent, by the way. What? Cagney and Lacey's Tyne Daly? That's that's right. Touched by an angel herself. Is that what she was on? No. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Before my time. She, sorry, she was not on Touched by an Angel. My apologies. But everyone. she is a very well-acclaimed, I believe, probably a theater actor. I mean, she's she's fantastic she's, I mean, yeah, th- this is an interesting film in that, like, you got those grizzled vets. You have someone like Janine Garofalo showing up. And then you have a lot of people that Patrick Wang, you know, I said in interviews, we just cast them in the town. Like, they were just available and they did right. acting. To, but they would give that kind of flavor of what we're trying to do of like a community center. And I mean, you talk, you talk about the Rivette comparison. I mean, it's a movie where like the canvas of it seems like spread through throughout across the town. It feels like it feels like a movie where like it's continuing, you know, outside the frame of the movie. There are all these characters, some young, some old. Well, as Rosenbaum pointed out, mostly very young or, or very, very old. old. Yeah, there's no really like middle people in this movie. So like, you know, there's there's an old theater critic who's like has a feud with this old actor because he gave him a bad review like 50 years ago. <laughs> yes. You also have like a newspaper, like a little local one. Did, did you have any flashbacks in this to being a newspaper person? Yeah, a little bit, you know. Because there's a lot bit. of discussion of like what it means to be a newspaper person. Mm-hmm. Newspaper. Uh, as if I don't know what the word reporter is <laughs> and like how you go and get stories and what it means as well to take on the responsibility of running something like that. But the central drama of both parts is that the bread factory is under threat because there's this flashy new art center that's that's being built that has a lot of capital behind it and their centerpiece attraction is this bizarre conceptual art duo called may ray which are uh, i mean how would you describe them uh they're just what when you think of like they're like gentrified yoko ono yeah what is the most cliche version of what experimental art performance art that's what they're doing i would say the biggest challenge for me in this movie is the sort of clash between like naturalism and you know extreme comedy yes like there's like zucker brothers gags in this yeah actually and i mean there there are moments particularly in the second part of like musical numbers breaking out like tap dance routines and stuff like that as well as like the 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 style of the film changes frequently where certain of the theatrical performances like kind of blend into the reality Well, i would say that i get the feeling that he did it that way because he really wanted to show kind of like what a community center is like what does it you know envelop and you get that as well with you keep getting people coming to the center for example janine graffalo plays a filmmaker who shows her film and then them doing a q a and like what do they bring to the community mm-hmm. of the understanding of this art like there's also a play that they're practicing that serves as kind of like a backbone through part one and part two yeah. so in part one what you get is there is a thrust where they need to get enough votes it's just a classic lincoln situation the funding is either going to go to may ray or them Mm-hmm. And there, there's so much power, there's so much energy behind many powerful interests and money behind this new conceptual art. Yes. I mean, probably scuzzy money, yeah. as we learned throughout the movie. Yeah. But some of the Zucker Brothers gags, like at one of the town council debates where the funding is going to be decided, they bring out some like glamorous Hollywood actor, you know, a young like heartthrob type who comes in. And he comes in like being chased by like 
a guy trying to sell him his screenplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The characterization is so broad. And mm-hmm. then he starts delivering a testimony and they says, um, line, please. You know, that year I lost my mom, my dog, mm-hmm. to dog cancer. Yeah. <laughs> And like, I think the movie is both like rigorous and loose, you know, like it's, it's, there's so much about it that's very deliberate, but then there's so much about it that's just like letting any kind of style, uh, letting all sorts of characters, all sorts of sensibilities. Wouldn't that be a community center that absolutely that you're going in and out of. And like the second part is interesting because after the, like, there's a goal in the first one, this is what Mm -hmm. we're going to. The second one is like, all right, how do you live with that afterwards? How Mm -hmm. does this continue? And I mean, does it continue? Because yeah. like there's something that happened that we were like, oh wait, that that's it. Mm-hmm. Like, do things go away? Do you know these people continue to live? Like people die that are like there for most of the movie off screen, mm-hmm. and the character's like, oh wait, you didn't know? Like this because that what happens in real life. You are not present for those moments, mm-hmm. and I, I found that very moving, especially like how the second one wraps up, which is the first one you get like all of these different elements of the arts you see in this community center. I should also point out Patrick Wang was inspired by going to a community center like this. That was run by two women when he was touring one of his films. Mm -hmm. And then you get like a sense of all of these different crafts. And then in the second one, they want you to say, all right, you've seen these things. You see how it can help people now just live in it. This Mm -hmm. is what they do. And you Mm -hmm. actually see for like, 50 minutes a play that they're putting on mm-hmm. with all the actors you've seen them rehearsing it and it asks you to just like sit in this audience watch this play can't be overstated that both parts are designed to be watched back to back yes 100 percent. and i love that when that play ends and it's like beautifully mounted patrick wang like hunted down a translation for it he really did stuff i mean he talks about in some of the extras on the blu-ray that he did want to do kind of theatrical show where it feels like you're in it so like it's mostly black in the background and there's also lighting that you couldn't really do in theater to get like from scene to scene but when it ends you look and there's like no one in the audience there's like five people maybe mm-hmm. and a character even goes boy i wish more people would have come to this like yeah. considering how much work that we put into it but that's just like the nature of doing these kinds of things i can't imagine patrick wang identifies <laughs> no not at all mm-hmm. so did, what do you feel like did you get out of watching these two movies though i mean aside from you know just a very stimulating and entertaining experience i mean the four hours just fly by yeah i think that's important for people too that when you hear like uh three hours like in the family i remember when i heard about it was like oh man three hours long guess what every blockbuster you see in movies are three hours long and they suck oh yeah sure i mean if you can spend three hours on i don't know what's the the flash or something you can spend an extra hour on this one Mm. and have a good time yes but just what, what what did i get from it i mean just the kind of like freedom of it yeah of someone who is not constrained by any rules or he he doesn't feel like he's trying to please any particular audience and like as a depiction of art making Mm -hmm. in the world diy art making specifically diy art 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 making like kind of understanding that like a space like this is a struggle Mm -hmm. like there are forces you know political forces in this movie against this space and like but also like the the reach that this space has the impact that the space has on people and the people have on it like classes to learn to build furniture and thing like that the space is a conversation with the outside world and uh you know every movie is a conversation with the outside world as well and just like the space like these movies are struggling to exist like they find little audiences that they make an impact that they matter to Mm -hmm. but you know in the grand scheme of things patrick wayne could just go well i don't want to do this anymore like Mm -hmm. i'm not even probably getting the money back that it costs 
cost to make these movies. Yeah. And like, I've done three of them. What else can I do to get an audience? Mm-hmm. And that's the frustrating thing. But I mean, from all I hear, he's wants to keep making movies, which is great. Cause mm-hmm. I want to see like, what else does he have in him? Because these three movies are pretty distinct from themselves in tone mm-hmm. and subject matter and even execution. So like, what would his next one be? Yeah. I mean, if his career ended right now with this one, it would feel like, like a, the uh, the big a, a complete culmination. Yes, but I would love to see what happens after this. Absolutely, yeah. and I hope that people listening to this, this is one of those episodes that's like, go watch these movies. Like you can rent them on you know streaming services. You'll have to pay money for them. I, probably. I saw the, I saw them on Apple TV as well as Grasshopper Films puts out Blu-rays of them. He mm. got a distributor, so yeah. So I know the a Bread Factory is very available from Grasshopper Films on Blu-ray. So you know, make the effort, check it out, and hopefully you'll find a new favorite filmmaker so justin do we have any letters this week we do have letters as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com the first letter is subject line mystery movie memories dear justin and will i recently discovered your podcast when a former film student of mine matt holler recommended it and i've gradually worked my way through your back catalog over the past several months why so long? Hey, just because I'm listening to you guys doesn't mean I'm going to stop listening to Blank Check, The Flophouse, and Video Archive. Okay, how dare you? <laughs> no, that's a good list to be in. How how dare you? We demand a monogamous relationship with our listeners. Yeah, I don't listen to any of those podcasts before. <laughs> Imagine my surprise when I got to the Pam Greer episode and heard Matt's first letter to you read aloud. It's been a constant source of amusement for me to continue going through episodes and have more of Matt's letters. At this point, I can't help but feel... Wait, has he been writing all, all those letters all Wait. along? <laughs> no. No, not all of them, probably just the majority of them. At this point, I can't help but feel that when it comes to film knowledge, I'm like Darth Vader to Obi-Wan Kenobi. The learner has surpassed the master, I guess. Is this metaphor in this metaphor? Wait, who's who's Darth Vader? Who's Obi-Wan? I think he's... Is, is, is Matt Holler? No, Matt Holler would be Darth Vader in this situation. Oh. And the, this letter writer would be Obi-Wan because he was the film teacher to Matt. Oh, okay, okay. I which see. makes us, as this letter says, Palpatine or Doku, all your favorite characters, right, Will? Yeah, Jar Jar. Yeah, love Jar Jar. Jar Jar? Dark Jedi. I don't know. I guess the metaphor fell apart there, but the point is that you guys have clearly been a big part of that growth, and I continue to be amazed at your breadth and depth of encyclopedic knowledge. Finally, academia is, or I assume a film teacher, he announced in this letter. So who's going to teach a course in us? <laughs> One of those, like, university courses, you're like, ah, easy pass. I'd like I'd like there to be a book called The Important Cinema Club Reader, where various scholars write well, it's essays. It's, like, so, like, academic. It's like, I can't even read this. About, like, The Important Cinema Club and spectatorship. Mm. Something like that. The letter continues, in any case, every once in a while you discuss an experience of when people see snippets of films in childhood and then are haunted by not knowing what movie it is, assuming that their memories are accurate. Well, I have one for you and your audience. I remember being over at a friend's house when I was about eight or nine years old, and there was this old movie on TV in the background. It was in color, and judging by the shaggy hairstyles, must have been made in the 70s or early 80s, and I think it was a werewolf movie. Since we were playing, I only caught snippets, but one scene is burned in my memory. A man and his wife or girlfriend get out of their car... I think the woods and encounter some kind of sacred ceremony. I don't remember if it was native American or Christian ceremony, but had some kind of new agey vibe to it. Anyhow, when he tries to approach the ceremony, the man finds he is unable to in an almost exterminating angel way, or like there's a force field preventing him from entering the sacred space. The implication being that he has been bitten by a werewolf and he is now tainted. Damned. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Anyhow, I love the show. Keep doing great work. CJ Fusco. I do not recognize that could movie. It, could it be The Howling? I'm going with the most obvious. <laughs> American werewolf. werewolf in London? Yeah, yeah. Probably not. But hey, if anyone knows, 
right in. Let's yeah, let's solve let, this let's mystery. Solve this mystery. I have to say, I've been programming the 24-hour horror movie mind melter that I do on Twitch every year, October 21st this year, starting at 11 a.m. And I was going through, I go through like lists of movies of just horror films to be like, is there anything that like catches my interest? And I gotta say, have I seen every horror film at this point? Because I'm like <laughs> going through, and I'm like, yeah, seen it, seen it, know about it, know about it. Nah, don't like it, don't like it. Well, maybe. there's so few like discoveries for me am i just like beaten down but only when it comes to horror films i feel yeah where i'm like yeah I, I know all of these like i i long for that discovery of you know someone like visual vengeance being oh we have a new film that was shot on super 8 that no one has ever seen or something like that maybe you should do the 24-hour drama movie mind oh, melter yeah and i would get tons of people all to watch alan that. j pacula films one of the comments i always get when i do that marathon is people go like it was a little slow for the first 30 minutes i'm like because you're at your computer and you can do whatever you want That's that's like, right. You're so easily distracted. When I pick movies for that, I just watch a really great movie yesterday. But by the end, I was like, no, I won't be able to program this one because people will be like, oh, disappointing. It didn't end in an explosive way or something like that. What was the movie? Well, I won't say because maybe I'll be desperate and I'll be like, well, I'm okay. programming it. Okay. <laughs> I'll play it at 2 a.m. in the morning when people, the real diehards are watching. That's right. But thank you very much for that letter. And if anybody knows what that movie is, and I feel like that's enough details that someone out there may know what this is. Because often you get like, oh, this is a still image from an animated thing on a TV that a friend it's took. Like, it's like an elf yeah. on a TV in the background, yeah. <laughs> Even though it's not a photo of your childhood, it's somebody else's. No, no. <laughs> but eventually people figure it out. Maybe this movie this person described will be a movie that I'll be like, wow, I can't believe this exists. You got out there. Or maybe it'll be like a Paul Nashie werewolf movie. Or maybe or it'll just that. be The Howling. Who knows? <laughs> the, Howling. the most famous one, yeah. <laughs> So thank you very much again for that letter. And our next letter goes, Hey, Justin and Will, I started listening to the pod back in July and just caught up on all the main feed Patreon episodes. That is a heroic work. As you hear all the time, thanks for letting me discover Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh. I've also found a new appreciation for Jerry Lewis. And I've begun to dive into the world of Hong Kong action. Mm, we're doing the Lord's work that way. <laughs> Getting right. people to watch that kind of stuff. As for an episode recommendation, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the films of, I will struggle through this now, Sergei Bardachuk? His six-hour ad adaptation of War and Peace seems daunting from the outset, but after watching the first part on a December afternoon last year, I called in sick at work and watched the remaining three in a row. Ooh. Wow. His film Waterloo also includes an incredibly drunk Orson Welles. Ooh. Hopefully that's all the convincing you need. Thanks for everything, you guys. Looking forward to many more episodes in the future. Didn't you pick up War and Peace when it was released by the Criterion Collection in the new remaster recently, Will? Well, I've heard a lot of good things about War and Peace. Yes, I would like to check out that filmmaker doesn't have that many films in his filmography, even though some of them are very long and everyone who watches war and peace is like, it's amazing. I love it. And I mean, a drunk Orson Welles, where else would we be able to see that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the suggestion. We don't do Russian filmmakers very often, so I will add this one to the list and it'll probably be the next one that we do. So this week on our Patreon, what are we talking about, Will? We're doing our third and final dispatch from the Toronto International Film Festival. All La the films you need to hear about, nothing else. Last week, you heard us talk about the Sylvester Stallone art exhibit, which <laughs> yes. was part of the festival and which we both had a great time. I wish I could have seen that Sly documentary. It's probably coming to Netflix or something. It like is that. coming to Netflix. All right. It's fine. You can watch it while you're cooking or whatever. Oh, have you already seen it? Or No, I'm just assuming. You just know it'll be yeah, fine. Yeah. yeah. Among other things, we discussed the appearance of Hong Kong superstar Andy Lau. Specifically, us sitting in an audience basking in his presence what was that like what have we learned about andy lau as you know the white guy sitting with a 
mostly Chinese audience? Well, you have to listen to the episode to find out. That's at uh, patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And by the way, speaking of plugs, I'll say it again. October 3rd at the Fox Theater in Toronto in the beautiful Beaches neighborhood. Justin and I are screening series, the important cinema club masterpiece classics. We are presenting the incredible Canadian horror film things. It is the horror event of the season. Some people have called it the worst Canadian film of all time. They are incorrect. They're wrong. It's a beautiful film. Yeah. You will not forget the experience of watching this movie. I mean, come on. And it's not having watched it with an audience before. It is not like a torturous experience either. It's like lots of laughs. It's really fun, but it's not the room either. No, it's not the room. It's a beautiful, a beautiful film in a way. We'll keep hyping it up until then, which is only a couple weeks away at this point. October 3rd. Yep. So check it out. You can buy tickets now online, buy them, sell it out for us. We would very much appreciate that. So next week, festival month concludes. Woo! We needed some real festival darlings. And like who, the ones who, oh, you made a movie? Pfft, yeah, you're in. Yeah, come on, come to Khan. We'll we'll give you a prize. You get a prize. You'll get two Palm Doors at the very least. And maybe you'll get the jury prize. Maybe you'll get best director. Maybe you'll get best screenplay. For years, these men got a prize every time they entered. It's the Dardenne brothers, folks. We're gonna be talking about La Font. We're gonna be talking about Rosetta. And we're gonna be talking about you, you know what it is. You, yeah. you know, two days. Two days, one night, f- five years. In the Valley, of course. The that, classic Quentin Tarantino ripoff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, folks, it's the Dardens. The, you know what they are. The, the gods. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you've seen all their movies, right, Will? Big fan? I've seen most of them. Mm. I saw them as they were coming out. Yeah. Oh, so you were like dutifully put your hat on go to the cinema eat my vegetables yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm ready to buckle up you know i'm gonna zoom down that bicycle path with the dardens that that's what they're all about right bicycle racing yeah that the, yeah and, and giant monsters oh yeah I love you like it. monsters right i've seen maybe two or four of their films so but what if the monster was the indignity of poverty Oh, geez. Uh, what's that? Ken Loach is here. It's an Avengers-like festival thing. So, lots to look forward to. Yep. We'll be doing that next week. So, until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd just like to thank some of the new patrons, who include Yeso, Andrew Martinez, Tyler M. Bagby, Grace, Jack Braithwaite, William Jones, Logan Colhagen, Alex Owen, Kyle Gustafsson, and John Daniel. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, as I said on our Patreon episode this week, we're talking about seeing Andy Lau live at the Toronto International Film Festival. But did you know that he came to TIFF with a movie? What? He didn't just come on his own regard to accept the very real award they gave him? <laughs> yeah. An award that definitely existed last year yes. and will exist next year. Not the first time they gave this award to someone. The award for bestest acting in the field of acting. I think it was like career... Yeah. yeah, something. <laughs> the the excellence, now, the excellence how, of how career. Do you do that with a straight face when you do that? Like, is is it Andy Lau's people who say like, if he comes down, you need to give him an award? I think some negotiation has to happen like mm-hmm. that. Like, there's a lot of politics that go into it. It's mm-hmm. like, why would somebody come the second weekend of the festival? Yeah. Well, we'll give you Roy Thompson Hall, and we'll give you an award. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what's the award? Or they're like, oh, that sounds good. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Because even Andy Lau, when he accepted the award, he was like, next time it'll be a real award. Basically what he said. Well, I mean, he probably saw Tony Lung in Venice like two weeks before getting a, a real award. Wait, what did Tony Lung win for? 
Tony Lung got like an honorary lion or something. Like Ang Lee. Yeah, that's not a real one. No, an no, honorary okay, award. No, hang on, hang on. Like when Venice gives an honorary award, it's real. When what are you Ka- talking about? People's Choice Awards? Oh, you mean what Tiff gives? Yes. Like I say, when Venice gives an award, it's a real <laughs> award. Ang Lee came, gave it to him. He was tearing. It was a beautiful moment. You know, you know that Andy Lau looked at that and was like, those fuckers. Yeah, it's a non-honorary award. Which, I thought for a second Tony Lung had won for acting. Well, he has won for acting. Yes, yes. So, but but like, not recently. No. Andy Lau has won for acting at the Hong Kong Film Awards as well. Yeah. So he's got that. Yeah, that, yeah, that's fine. But like what I'm saying is mm. like when he's accepting like the fake award from the Toronto International Film <laughs> Festival and then he looks at. Uh, well, all awards are fake. Well, that's I'm sure what he tells himself. <laughs> he probably is like, oh, thanks. And then like tosses it off the balcony. <laughs> yeah. a lo- along with all the other like, you know, prizes and gifts that famous people get when they go anywhere. Oh, yeah. Just big bags of stuff. I, I remember I had a job once where I, I talked to a guy, a coworker who once like. 15 years ago, it was their job to like chauffeur around Donald Trump for the day. Oh, yeah. Uh, Like back apprentice era. Mm -hmm. And the thing that he remembered more than anything is he was being showered with gifts everywhere he went and he just left them in the car. Yeah, he doesn't need that that junk. Yeah. There's a rich. (laughs) He can buy whatever he wants. Yeah. So the movie that we watch, uh, The Movie Emperor, is interesting because it's about Andy Lau being Andy Lau. That's right. So Andy Lau plays a very Andy Lau-like Chinese superstar. It begins at the Hong Kong Film Awards where he's up for best actor, beaten by Jackie Chan. Who doesn't even show up for the awards, which sounds about right. Yeah. In an award given out by Wong Jing. Yeah. And the railheads know. Yeah. They uh, know. Well, this is a movie that, like, I got maybe. 10%, uh, 5% of the jokes, because other than the kind of, you know, dry humor, it seems very directed to people who have known Andy Lau's entire career. Sure. And a lot of colloquial references to the Hong Kong film industry. But I get, I look, I get the gist of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, I mean, it starts very funny where he's doing an interview. He's sitting in the chair or the interview hasn't shown up yet. And he gets up and he moves the Jackie Chan banner off to the side yeah. and takes the Andy Lau one and puts it right behind him. And then when the photographer shows up, he's like, oh man, Jackie Chan's all the way at the end. Pff, he's not going to win this award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so Andy Lau, after losing this award, decides, I want to win one. And he makes he wants to be a serious actor and make a serious movie. So he goes to the mainland and works with like a serious director. And uh, there's some, you know, there's, there's the one- The serious director played by the director of the film. <laughs> there's one joke in particular where he goes to the mainland and somebody says- like there's a joke about oh yeah they abolished poverty here yeah he says oh can i see like real people and they basically drive him around to all these like displays they set up for him to see like oh it's a guy who cuts faces into watermelons and he goes can i see like real people like impoverished people and then the guy goes china has completely eliminated poverty it doesn't exist anymore and like when we saw it there was a laugh yeah like you can't not laugh at that and i'm just like how did they he's any laugh how did they get that through yeah they you know what he turned around and went what herman yao film am i starring in that's a piece of (laughs) propaganda yeah let's go and do it no problem so the movie from there it's like a rather scattershot satire of you know the festival circuit and pretentious film directors and pretentious actors yeah i wonder like and cancel culture yes a little bit of that in the last act too well well, andy lau in this movie it's interesting because 
it was written by his business partner. So it's like, I feel like these are some deep ass cuts when it comes to stuff that Andy Lau has done in real life. Yeah. Like there's a joke where he meets a butcher and the butcher like takes him out to drink and he gives him like, this is the knife that really made me who I am. And then they park off on the side of the road and Andy Lau just throws it away, which comes to bite him later in the butt. And like, as the movie goes on, it basically reveals like Andy Lau sucks as a person. <laughs> like he stinks that he's doing this for the wrong reasons. One of the big, you know, dramatic conceits of the film is that there's footage of him on a horse as it trips. And Andy Lau's like, but I was doing my own stunts. Yeah. Like, I, don't you understand how hard that is? Me doing my own stunts? And everybody on the internet is like, oh, no, the poor horse. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. and, and there's the whole scene where he's like trying to apologize, but he can't apologize because he's like, but I did my own stunts. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you don't know how hard this it's is. Like Leo in The Revenant. Yeah. And later on, he's even like, I don't even like animals. Don't make me hug an animal. I don't want to do it. <laughs> it's great. Andy Lau just makes fun of himself. And then he can turn around and just make... Uh, more movies, I will say. You know, he's in a movie with Tony Lund's coming out in December. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, it's like both of them back together again. I say I can't wait. I don't know if I'll see it. Like, <laughs> I mean, it'll definitely come if it's to a Young and Dundas. We should yeah, go see absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think that there's something like weird about movies where like actors make fun of themselves in this way? Like, it's like, what? Come on. Oh, like weird. How so? Like, I'm trying to find like not apologizing for like. Oh, I am like this, but like, is it self-serving? self-serving? Yeah. It's definitely self-serving. Yes. I will say though, like when you compare this movie to Jackie Chan's recent ride right on, on. Yeah. which was Jackie Chan's own kind of like meta textual, like examination of his own stardom in late middle age. Ah, uh, look me and my daughter reconciling, even though they're my real life daughter, I've never actually spoken to her. Yeah. Like I think this one has that one beat, you know, I mean like you, you think of stuff that, you know, as me and you normal everyday people don't think about like the fact that he goes to a very young woman's apartment to perhaps you know make love yeah. and that like to he, perhaps maybe have a little of the how shall we say intercourse but like he is so highly aware of every camera in the room yeah like yeah, yeah. even like takes a band-aid off and like puts it over the tv camera that's that's a really funny touch that's like the mind of a celebrity touch mm. gets that in there yeah and it does make him like look like a, a fool that doesn't want Want any kind of confrontation or anything yeah. like that which you know maybe that's how he is maybe he's a monster i don't know any lao seems to be a figure that even people who have like met him briefly don't really get a sense of him just because he's always he always has to be on when he's with crowds and stuff like that oh, just like us i mean we know someone it's like a friend of a friend who works as a special effects person in mainland china on big productions and that guy doesn't care at all about any celebrities he's that's met, right like, i've talked about him before he's met Choi hark he's met stephen chow he's gotten into fights with Choi hark on set about makeup so who does he like and who does he not like he said that they were all nice he said that yeah this guy andy lau we went to dinner with he was very nice like he was sitting like right beside him fuck i'll go to dinner with andy lau invite me that's what andy lau probably wants that you're nerds like you're right he he wants like some white guy who has no idea who he is right so maybe if we can somehow become the ultimate actors and be that person when we finally sit down and then just as the check is being delivered we drop so what was like making future cops (laughs) exactly (laughs)